Good morning, sailor sea, oceans everywhere, and fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. Welcome to Scanna. I'm Mark Laren Young, author of The Killer Whale Who Changed the World and director of The Hundred-Year-Old Whale. That's the story of Granny, now on Vimeo On Demand. One reason we started this podcast was because we kept coming across amazing people we wanted to talk to about the fight to save our orcas and oceans. And today's episode features someone who's been on my interview wish list since I discovered that when David Nywert wasn't writing about orcas, he was one of the world's leading experts on hate groups in America. David is the author of the book of Orcas and Men, What Killer Whales Can Teach Us, where he spends a lot of time writing about orcas and compassion. His latest book, Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, not so much about orcas or compassion. Since David covers both these issues, we went for a dive into a question I get asked a lot these days. With all the problems facing the world today and Trump, why fight for whales? We talked to David Nywert this summer outside his home in Friday Harbor when we were both attending Superpod 6. Scanit is brought to you monthly by our awesome sponsors at Patreon.com. We're just a few patrons away from jumping to twice a month, so please join our pod alongside awesome patrons like Jamie Kayamata, Eagle Wing Whale Watching Tours, It's Only Natural Clothing, Simon McNair, and Yosef Wask. And now, orcas. Alt-right. Killer racists. Killer whales. What's the connection? Let's meet David Nywert and find out. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Okay. Since we're recording this at Superpod, let's <laughs> kick off by you explaining what Superpod is. Well, I've only been to three of them, but they basically are a blackfish-oriented gathering that draws in scientists and activists from all over the world once every two years to Friday Harbor. It's really fantastic for people who live here because uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty impressive collection that comes to it. And uh, I think over the years, it's kind of formed its own community, too, which is also you know, a very impressive community, and especially in terms when you look at the aggregation of the people who come. You know, there's all these scientists who you read stuff about, and there's all these activists and these former trainers who have uh, you know, made, <laughs> made waves by, by taking on the industry. So... Um, but interestingly, you know, enough is not just focused on captivity, which is, of course is the main subject of blackfish, but really because it's out here on the islands, it's primarily it's much more about wild whales than it is captivity. Um, there's a lot of presentations on, on the issues that wild whales face. And certainly that's the main issue out here in the islands. So. Now... I know you're up to speed on pretty much all things Orca, but was there anything that really shocked you at this weekend, or this week, rather? There wasn't anything that shocked me. 
Um, I, uh, I was, I mean, I was impressed by a number of, mostly I, I was impressed by a lot of the presentations. Um, I mean, the, the, actually the most interesting scientific stuff, uh, came from Ingrid Visser and, um, I already knew all that beforehand because my daughter works with Ingrid. So that would do it. Yeah. <laughs> the fake news media has never been so wrong or so dirty. Purposely incorrect stories and phony sources to meet their agenda of hate. Now, I want to talk about your other life, because you came from environmental reporting into reporting on the alt-right mm -hmm. back into Wales. So can you? Sure. Well, I was, when I started freelancing in the 90s, um, you know, I was mainly an environmental reporter, but I started reporting on these. Uh, militias forming here in the Northwest as uh, uh, they were, you know, it was an environmental backlash uh, that these were forming around and uh, or really an anti-environmental backlash. And uh, so I started writing about them. Uh, at about the same time, I started writing about killer whales because I had just moved out here to the Seattle area in 89 and started writing about them in 91, 92, just because... Killer whales are the consummate Northwest environmental story. I mean, when I looked at, well, what do I want to write about when I free, start freelancing? Um, two good reasons to do killer whales. One, they really do wrap up all of the sort of environmental stories that course through the Northwest. Every, you know, land use, water pollution, uh, overshipping, overpopulation. Um, you know, all, and, and of course, even timber use gets played into uh, the, what happens to these killer whales. So I thought they were a terrific sort of consummate environmental story to write about. And then second reason is they're just the coolest animals on the planet. So why wouldn't you? You know, it was, it was a, I'd always been interested in them, um, but I had, of course, never seen them until I moved out here because I grew up in rural Idaho. <laughs> My wife's from Montana. Idaho, watch... not not really prime whale watching territory? No, not, not many uh, cetaceans out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, but it was on Flipper. You know, I watched Flipper when I was a kid and I wrote all kinds of papers on dolphins and I was always fascinated with them. So when we got married in 89, uh, just as we moved out here to the Seattle area and we went to Victoria and Vancouver Island for our honeymoon. Went up to Alert Bay to go sail with the whales on the sea smoke. And uh, the day we went out was the only day they got skunked. Oh, skunk. Wait, skunk? <laughs> so we didn't ever see, ever see any whales on that trip. But we got back and we, or we went, well, you know, that's okay. We had a lovely day anyway. And, um, and we, when we got back, well, we still wanted to see these whales, but we knew that they come around the San Juan. So we said, well, let's just start hanging out in the San Juans. There's campgrounds up here. We can bicycle and all kinds of stuff. So we'd start, we started coming up to the San Juans. 
hoping to see these orcas, but um, um, <laughs> we didn't. For about two years, we'd chase them. You know, we'd show up and people would say, oh, yeah, they just left 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they do, yeah. Yeah. So, we, yeah. And my wife thought she was cursed. Or, you know, that we were jinxed that the whales knew we were coming and would flee at our approach, you know. <laughs> it certainly felt that way. So I said, well, I know how to solve this because I want to write about them. So I'm going to call up this guy, Ken Balcom, and see if he'll let me go out on one of his research boats with him. And I can report on what they're doing because I learned to do that anyway. So I finally got to see whales by going out with uh, Astrid Van Ginnica and then a small crew on the old, uh, on the catamaran or the trimaran that Ken used to own. And uh, we saw that we went into Sandwich Inlet and then saw some transients in there. So, oh, wow. Anyway, I was started writing about killer whales about the same time I was writing these pieces about. Militias, and uh, then um, Oklahoma City happened in '95, and uh, that changed everything for me. Suddenly, I was uh, a militia expert because I was one of the only reporters who'd gone out and talked to these guys, right, in the woods. And so everybody else came to me and said, "Hey, tell us all about these militias." But I'd already had kind of a running relationship with the SPLC dating back to. Um, really, my very first newspaper job was in the Panhandle of Idaho, uh, where it was just uh, I was at Sandpoint, the editor of the little paper in Sandpoint, which is 20 miles north of Hayden Lake, which is where the Aryan Nations had set up shop. Just about this time, I was the editor of the paper, this is 78-79. And uh, I used to get letters to the editor from the leader of the order, a guy named Robert Matthews. Um, we made the astute decision not to cover them. <laughs> that really worked out well. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was one of my early lessons in, you know, how do you deal with the alt-right? Well, you can't pretend them away. You can't ignore them away. And so I, you know, just always had them as realized that, you know, we need to cover these guys. And I was just covering them seriously as a news story. You know, there's no shortage of criminal stories to write about. Despite the constant negative press, kerfuffle. I'm going to do a quick Canadian translation, SPLC. Southern Poverty Law Center. And so we would call the Southern Poverty Law Center because they were the experts in hate groups like the Aryan Nations. And so I had this, I'd had an unofficial relationship with them, you know, calling them as a reporter over the years. And then in the 90s, a lot more with the, the militias. And so I kind of developed this. They actually recruited me to go to work for them in the you know late 90s. And I <laughs> declined because back then they required you to move to Montgomery, Alabama to work for them. There's no way in hell I was going to move to Montgomery, Alabama. I, I'd have been a fish out of water. Yeah. I'm a Northwest guy. You know, so... so. Uh, but I had this, so I had this running relationship with him, worked with him a lot over the years, and by um, 2013, I'd become enough of an you know, acknowledged, uh, consistent reporter on, on this stuff that they just gave me a contract to start writing for him. So I'm one of only two guys that actually has a contract with him. So, oh, wow. So <laughs> most of their people are employees. 
But uh, and the other guy is also in the Northwest. And he's actually been doing. His name's Bill Moreland. He's over in Spokane. He's been doing this stuff even longer on there. I've known his byline forever too. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, yeah. If you did cops and courts, you knew who Bill was. He was a legend. Now, you just said something that twigged for me. The the alt right started in reaction to the environmental movement. No, no, no. Or, or environmental movement. issues. They, out here, they were recruiting around the supposed uh, North Cascades ecosystem plan. They were saying this was part of a secret conspiracy to round up uh, conservatives and gun owners with black helicopters and put them in FEMA-run concentration camps. This was, uh, I would go to these militia meetings in rural Washington where they were telling people to organize militias to respond to this supposed threat. And so I started writing about them then. Yeah. They're all beating us, China, Japan, Wakanda. Okay, <laughs> Wakanda is laughing at us, right? What was it like going in? Were you welcome to report? Did you have to pretend you were one of these no. guys? No. No. Um, no, and back then I was a smoker. Uh, so it was really easy for me. What I would typically do is go, I would just be there taking notes, like any reporter, and there were a couple of other reporters there. Um, and then I'd go out and hang out in the parking lot where everybody was smoking and smoke with them. And that was where I got all my great clothes. <laughs> I'd be talking to people out there in the parking lot. Nobody wanted to talk inside the hall. Yeah, cigarettes may be dangerous to your health, but they're really good for reporting. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it gives you an excuse to strike up conversations with people. But I, I'm actually, I don't regret quitting. <laughs> okay. But anyway, um, yeah. Uh, so I was, that was what I was doing. And, and really over the years, I just had a lot more, uh, mar a lot more market. You know how the freelance market is. If you're freelancing, it's hard to sell whale stories, but I could always sell hate group stories. So now, now those those became hard actually to sell even in the two thousands. So it was hard to find editors who wanted to run stories about the extremist right uh, during the Bush years, and for that matter, during, even during the Obama years. Now, Rain got into this with you, and uh, gathered this the conversation. You have a fair bit. We're in an age where anytime you say, I care about X issue, uh -huh. it's, how can you possibly care about plastic when Trump is doing X? How can you possibly care about right. whales when Trump is doing, it? I mean, it all roads lead to Trump now. <laughs> so, um, what, how do you respond when somebody says, why should we care about whales when Trump is doing, and I'm not even gonna say because I know what he's doing today. Today it's about Russia. Tomorrow, who knows? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But well, that's you know. But it's not just Trump. It's you could use that issue with anything. You know, when the global temperatures are rising, right? And when we have these massive, you know, why do we care? The, I, the big one is why do we care about straws? We should be going after drift nets. And I'm going. I'm trying to remember the last time big corporations that ran trawlers cared about public pressure. Right. Maybe well, not, that's why. Well, not only that. Uh, I mean, it's true. The public pressure really is uh, foundational for effective change. But um, 
at the same time, I don't think that is you know it's can't we multitask people? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's this great either or thing. You you should be on my issue. No yeah. other issues matter but my issue. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. crazy. Well, and you know, and, and and I you know mentioned it at my opening remarks. Yeah, at Superpod that um, you know some some of the activists kind of feel bad that they're doing whales and and fascism. They see fascism descending, and I said, you know, it's the same fight because. We're not, we gather to talk about whales. We're not talking about, we're not actually, well, of course, we study all the problems that they have. But when we talk about creating change, we're not talking about changing the whale's behavior. We're talking about changing human behavior, right? We're talking about people. I mean, ultimately, that's what we're organizing to change is human behavior. Change each other, change our hearts and minds, right? And so when, if you, so, to me, the fight against Trump and against hate groups and against the far radical right is very much the same fight that I'm engaged with when it comes to saving whales, which is the fight to decide what kind of humans we're going to be, what kind of world are we going to make, you know? Um, are we going to be empathetic, decent, kind, generous people? Or human beings, or are we going to be cruel and greedy and mean? Or do we want to believe we can continue to control the world as its lord and master, or do we need to maybe understand that we're just part of the world and and need to find a better way of fitting into it? You know, um, those those are the kinds of things that that we deal with, not just with whales, but with Trump as well. And so me, for me, it is very much the same fight. When I'm fighting, one of the things I definitely learned pretty early on when dealing with hate groups is that the, the mistake, especially I think young anti-fascists make, is that, um, you know, it's very, somebody, you know, actually my very early political mentor was a man named Frank Church. He was a U.S. Senator from Idaho, famous man, ran the church committee that out in the CIA in the 1970s. And he warned me, he told me, in 79, I remember this, we were out fishing. He gave me a bit of advice that he had been given as a young man, which was, uh, choose your enemies wisely, for you will become like them. You know, this old adage. And I pondered on that for a long time, especially as I started um, dealing with the radical right. But I, you know, I figured out pretty quickly that, um, you know, it's really easy to fall into that trap of the, you know, uh, demonizing and dehumanizing and 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 uh, you know, objectifying these people who are on the radical right because you know, it's very tempting to because they do it to everybody else, right? But you don't want to become like them. So I've always worked hard to treat them as human beings, depict them as human beings, incredibly mis dis misguided human beings, most likely, but, but still people, you know, and tried never to lose sight of that. Um, and it's the same thing in the animal rights business. Um, you know, if you're out there posting on hate, hate Facebook, um, hateful stuff, if you're celebrating the death of people who abuse animals or wishing for their death, if um, if 
you're wishing harm on other people because they harm animals. Um, you know, if you're celebrating the death of a marine landowner, uh, just then you know you're doing it wrong, because this is not. This has got to be about empathy. This has got to be about basic human decency, and you can't go out and and change anybody's hearts and minds to get them to become a more decent person by spewing hate and wishing death on others, you know, wishing violence upon people. Um, I find it appalling. <laughs> so. But when you're sitting, you know, at this point, do you go, today I'm going to deal with Trump, today I'm going to deal with humpbacks? Like, how do you, how do you juggle? How are you making your choices? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, my priority is, um, uh, has got to be uh, right now fighting hate groups, uh, mainly because we're so Washington. Uh, when the night Trump, I had been working on the damn, with the damn sense people uh, right up through the election, up to the election um, in 2016, um, you know, I, helped organize the press conference for uh, the death of J-28 and was doing a lot of this work. And uh, I just had to drop out immediately after the election because we were so awash in this tide of hate crimes and uh, alt-right organizing these alt-right events that I had to get to. I was, was uh, 10 feet away from the guy who got shot uh, at University of Washington on inauguration night during the big alt-right Milo Yiannopoulos oh, wow. there. So, um, and I've been covering all of these events. So it's been, it's been two years of pretty hellish work, to tell you the truth. I seem to remember you doing a Facebook post saying that basically if Hillary won, you were doing a book about humpbacks. If Trump won, you were going to have to read, read a book about the rise of the alt-right. Not quite. Um, I actually started writing the book about the alt-right in in November, December 2015, because we could see we had a problem then. And I knew that even if uh, uh, Trump just went away overnight, that it wasn't going to be, up, it, it wasn't going to go away. That this was, the problem isn't Trump per se. The problem is the authoritarian army that he has raised in his way. And, um, or they kind of, I, I wouldn't say, you know, of course, a lot of this is, a lot of the thesis of my book is that actually Trump uh, was really taking advantage of things that have been building within the conservative movement for a long time. And um, so, but, but there's no question, and for that reason alone, it wasn't going to go away, right? That this is stuff that's built into the wiring right now, the conspiracism and the, the hatred of everything liberal, you know, the, the Fox has done a really good job of coaching half of America to hate the other half. Now pay attention, class. We have a lot to go over. Lesson one, why parents hate their children. In terms of the overlap, what, what do, what should Americans be doing to keep the EPA alive. Like, how do you, you know, I just read that the EPA is about to be gutted. So how do you deal with the environmental protections? Because 
you know, I'm talking about whales and oceans, and yeah. America's had actually, it kind of shocked me to discover that Washington's been ahead of BC on orca protection and on ocean protection and yeah. all that. And that looks like it could all go away overnight. So can you talk about that and also what one does about it? Well, I mean, really, we're, we're totally swimming upstream against the Trump administration when it comes to anything environmental. I mean, they're just, I mean, these guys exist to own the libs. <laughs> so if they can do something that's going to piss liberals off, like, oh, let's harm the environment, they'll do it, you know? <laughs> Oh, well, let's let's cut those whale protections on the east coast. Oh, and let's uh, let's open up the the continental shelf to uh, uh, what is it? The what's the kind of drilling they do? The Fracking. The, the, well, the no, it's not the it's the drill exploration that they're doing uh, with the sonic uh, blast, sonic cannons. Awesome. Uh, that that's how they find oil now. You know. They use these sonic cannons to explore, and it's lethal for cetaceans. So, um, but they've opened up the West Coast to that exploration now, um, which the Obama administration has shut down. You know, but they did it specifically to piss everybody off. So, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, one of Trump's main allies is uh, in Congress is Kathy McMorris Rogers, the Congresswoman from Spokane, who successfully shepherded a bill through the House of Representatives to uh, make the four lower snake river dams more or less permanent. Yeah, so, fortunately, it's, I don't think it's getting through the Senate. Well, but, but but that's that's what we're swimming upstream against. So, at this point, I think we just you fight with every tooth and nail you got, but it's an uphill fight. Can you talk everybody through the Snake River Dam? Because you're the first person I've been able to talk to about the Snake River Dam, what it means, oh, what yeah. the scoop is. Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Idaho, uh, in southern Idaho. Right when I was a kid, we used to spend time there in the headwaters of the Salmon River in the Stanley Basin. And I had, still have memories, you know, in the early 60s of seeing the spawning beds uh, there in uh, the Salmon River near Stanley. Uh, and you know this it was an amazing sight because you just see these whole river full of just nothing but salmon thrashing. It looked like you could walk across the water or walk across the river on the backs of all these salmon. If that were possible, of course it wouldn't be. But uh, you know it had that visual appearance, and you know it was it was it's still buried there in my diary because it was such an indelible sight. And, um, and, you know, they finished building those dams in 67. And um, it's just four, there are four dams there on the Lower Snake. Um, they're low-head hydro. They don't, they don't exist, actually, to produce power. They exist to provide barging. They, they existed to create the port of Lewiston. That's what they did. That was the whole reason for building those dams. The problem is it killed off all of those salmon runs, right? So by 1994, up there in Stanley, we had exactly one sockeye return. They called him Lonesome Larry. Oh. And uh, that's what those runs were reduced to by those dams in 30 short years. 
Welcome, everyone. I am your damn guide, Arnie. Now, I'm about to take you through a fully functioning power plant. So please, no one wander off the damn tour. And please take all the damn pictures you want. Now, are there any damn questions? So, um, yeah. People talk about what's happened. And, and, and the, the thing about it is, is that the federal uh, salmon people are always saying, well, we, we have a lot of recovery programs going here, and we're seeing modicums of success and all the things like that. Well, all of the programs that the federal government has going on the Columbia to recover the salmon runs are all tiny little Band-Aid things that don't do anything to actually substantially recover those salmon runs. The one thing they could do is tear down those four dams because they don't need them, and they're killing those runs. And because behind them is literally a thousand miles of truly pristine salmon habitat. I mean, it runs through the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, right? <laughs> it's wilderness. It's designated. It's, it's prime salmon habitat that winds up there in Stanley Basin. It's 4,500 feet. And the salmon it produces are incredibly hardy and usually pretty good sized. You know, if they can actually make it. But they can't make it anymore because of those dams. And of course, there are other dams on the Columbia, but they're not killing those salmon the way the four lower Snake River dams are. But they won't do it because it's all, you know, the only thing that's keeping it in place is uh, it's just the bureaucracy, uh, turf protection. These guys at the BPA don't want to lose their dams because they got power and jurisdiction over them. Guys at the Army Corps of Engineers who run it, they don't want to lose their dams either. They, they're politically connected enough to the senators and congressmen and governors that, uh, that we can't do anything. So, I mean, truly, I mean, I'm normally a, a really big fan of Patty Murray. I've friends with her brother. Patty Murray is? is this U.S. senator from Washington State. Okay. She's actually an incredibly powerful senator. She does great work on social security and women's rights and standing up for working class people. Um, but she's been totally absent on helping protect the way of life that people have here in these islands. Because let me tell you, if these whales go away, <laughs> everything that's in these islands is going to go away commercially. I mean, there will still be there will still be a few operations and people will still come here on vacations, but it ain't going to be like it used to be. Whales are why people come here. Really? Oh, yeah. It's the number one driver. Absolutely. People come from all over the world here to see these whales. This is one of the best places in the world to see them. Better than SeaWorld, that's for sure. <laughs> and you don't have to pay 90 bucks a head and $50 for parking and 10 bucks for a Coke. <laughs> Can you uh, talk through the campaign to to free the Snake River to, or to breach these dams? Well, there has been a, a steady push, um, particularly from uh, Jim Waddell and his Dam Sense organization, as well as others. And, um, you know, we keep getting... The, the frustrating part about it is, is that we can never get any of these politicians to actually sit down and talk with us. We have to talk to their staffers, and we can never, we never get a direct answer as to why... They can't take these dams down. They just say, well, it's politically difficult. Well, I can tell you why. It's because 
in the 90s, these dams were, became a political football in the culture wars. When, they, when salmon advocates first started, first suggested removing these dams, and this included, and the uh, Seattle City Council passed a resolution uh, supporting the removal of the dams in 97, 98, something like that. This created this huge reaction. It became, it got picked up by the Rush Limbaugh-esque radio talk show hosts out there in Spokane and in Eastern Washington, who of course make their livings shinning up hatred of all things liberal, right? So they jumped all over this and turned it into this, they're trying to destroy your way of life thing where, you know, you're just, and that was literally what they they were saying was that these those Seattle liberals just want to destroy your way of life. They have no idea what people have to do out here and how they make their living, and, you know, how hard workers live, right? And and it was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I knew, in fact, I was actually, if you go back and look, I wrote the very first article for Seattle Weekly in 2006 because I knew as soon as the um, killer whales were listed as an endangered species, that this was going to create a problem for those four dams. Because um, the killer whales, obviously, we know that they sit there and feed off the mouth of the Columbia in the wintertime. It's been historically what they do. And uh, and they count on those Chinook coming out of the, out of the Columbia, and they, they aren't there because of those four dams. So... Um, Eventually, those two things were going to cross paths. I knew it, and so I wrote a piece in 2006 about it. Um, and sure enough, that's where we're at. But the um, the reason that um, the Democrats in Washington State are afraid to take this on is that they know that as soon as they do, those people on talk radio shows in eastern Washington will be hopping up there on their high horses and making them out to be another clueless Seattle liberal who wants to take away their way of life. <laughs> so that, and that's why they're afraid. Uh, I just think they, that they shouldn't be that afraid of that stuff because it actually doesn't have any teeth anymore. And the truth, you know, you can actually get around that. It just takes some work. You know, it, it, and this is what kind of bugs me is that I think you can actually counteract this kind of mau mauing stuff to death by, um, by you know, putting in the work of going down and going out and having face to faces with people and 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 trying to get people to be reasonable. Because I think in the end of the day, most people eventually are reasonable or can be convinced to be. So um, you know it. it It'd take a lot of community meetings and people from Western Washington having to go out to Eastern Washington and sitting down face to face out there and saying, well, what can we do to make your lives better that after we remove these dams, you know, uh, can we, you know, obviously there are a lot of things that they can do to mitigate the costs, which are actually relatively minor to for these farmers because there are things like you know, they now have pumping systems, so they don't need the reservoirs. They can just drop the pumps down to the river level that are much more sophisticated than things were in the 60s. Um, if they, and if they want to ship their grain, they don't have to do the barges because, and most of them aren't doing the barges anymore because barging has become too expensive. 
is what those dams were primarily created to do. And the, the ironic thing about it is, is that the Republican delegation from Idaho, which is perfectly aware of these problems and actually is sympathetic to the idea of taking down the dams because actually everybody in central Idaho recognizes what it's done to their fish, right? And so there was actually uh, the Republican delegation from Idaho, which is one of the stakeholders in this whole affair, actually approached the people in Washington state, including Murray, about let's maybe talk about taking these dams down. And they got shut down. Um, I know for a fact that Jeff Merkley, the senator from Oregon, wanted to talk about taking those dams down. Murray shut him down. So this is... And I also know for a fact that Obama was ready to sign an executive order on his way out the door to tear those dams down. Murray shut him down. So um, as much as I admire Murray, I'm absolutely frustrated and angry with her for the fact that she doesn't care about these whales. She's willing to let them go extinct because they will go extinct if we don't take those dams down. There's just no way about it. The whole world's on fire. The world is on fire. Yes, your world is on fire. How did Washington move so phenomenally quickly on salmon farms, but not on this? And, and can you explain what just happened with here with salmon farms? Sure. Well, there's nothing like a good environmental disaster to spur people to action, is there? And what happened in Washington State was that we had a huge salmon farm out here off of well, it was Samish Island. Anyway, I'm not sure where. Um, out here in Salish Sea that collapsed and uh, freed hundreds of thousands of Atlantic salmon. Oh, Florida didn't they Washington. blame the weather? The it, tides. It was yeah, the tides. Because you really, you yeah. know... Not like tides ever happen. Well, yeah. yeah, it was such an it's unusual an... tide that the, the that it wasn't able to withstand the stress. Well, it, it, it actually wasn't. The, anyway, it was that they had done such poor maintenance on these pens that uh, it wasn't able to withstand the high tide and <laughs> fell apart. Um, and that got quickly discovered by the investigators. Um, and not only was it discovered by the investigators, but it also turned out that the company that ran them was just bald-facedly lying about the numbers of fish that had escaped um, and uh, you know how that how the event had happened and, and what they would be able to do to prevent it from happening again, right? And um, so basically, you know, the state said, you guys are a bunch of crooks and actually shut that company down, but it created such a stink around the whole aquaculture industry, which there was already a lot of suspicion about. Um, that uh, it pretty quickly went down. One of the things, one of the reasons I think Washington State actually has been able to resist a lot of the aquaculture industry um, pressure is the fact that it has had a pretty healthy, regular, traditional fishing industry for a very long time. And they're actually politically fairly powerful. The commercial fishermen in particular are pretty powerful in Washington State. So I think that that provided a lot of pushback against, I mean, I live in Ballard, which is the fisherman's, that's the center of fishermen 
area central. That's where the deadliest catch crew is based, right? Uh, as well as all these salmon fishermen and uh, the very popular bumper sticker in Ballard is don't, friends don't let friends eat farmed salmon. <laughs> you only eat wild salmon because that supports the fishermen's industry. So um, I think that's actually has a lot to do with it. This is sort of the way we're, we're set up politically, uh, that we were able to resist salmon farming the way that BC wasn't. Oh, in BC, it seems to be the opposite. Yeah. It, we've got it flipped. And it doesn't matter what the studies seem to say. Right. You know, the, our new government just decided to punt right. and say, well, well, we'll see if the First Nations approve you. I'm like, why at this point? Really? You've got all these studies. You've got the political capital, and you already know that we're having disaster after disaster, but you want to stall this for a few more years. Right. And also, you want to offload the decision onto these other governments. Right, right. Well, yeah, and the funny thing about aquaculture is it wouldn't be a problem at all. You could just put it on land. I, that's where I assumed it was. <laughs> it never occurred to me that we were letting this happen in the ocean. Oh, yeah. yeah and basically... It's open sea pants. Yeah. Or, or, open, or open sea... Yeah, it's in the open sea, and they're, and they're re literally just dumping all this crap. Because it's cages, right? Yeah. So they dump this stuff into the ocean, goes through the stuff, and then it drops down to the sea floor. Externalities. Yes. <laughs> my favorite environmental concept. Or my favorite economic concept. and the hormones and the... In the antibiotics and sea lice. Uh, so any fish that passes through those waters picks that shit up. Awesome. <laughs> so I wonder if, in fact, we have been observed by aliens, and upon close examination of human conduct and human behavior, they have concluded that there is no sign of intelligent life. Now, we should talk about your book, which was the original reason yeah, I wanted sure. to do this for so long. Uh, one of the things that really rocked my world about your book is the concept of empathy mm -hmm. as an evolutionary advantage. Yeah. Can you please talk about that and walk, walk people through that? Well, look, when, uh, so the, sort of the thesis, and I kind of did this little experiment with SETI where I asked them, well, what if you were able to find a species exactly like a killer whale on another planet? Would you consider it intelligent, intelligent life? And the guy answered, well, technically we wouldn't be able to see them anyway because they don't do radio signals, right? But, uh, but yeah, if we were ever to make that sort of discovery, I think that you'd have to agree that it's absolutely intelligent life. And uh, maybe even more intelligent than us is part of the problem with establishing intelligence is that our criteria for intelligence is entirely anthropocentric. Yeah, it's, it's human-centered. And uh, it's, it's like, this, well, whatever makes humans more intelligent is whatever the rest of the world is, is intelligence. But, um, you know, as Lori Marino says, we're really, you know, orcas may not be uh, the smartest humans on the planet, but, they're but humans are really stupid orcas. <laughs> we can't communicate by you know, whatever you means there is, and we can't see with that location, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, we don't have the intimate sense of bonds. And they do have extraordinarily intimate social lives. They spend their whole lives with their families. Um, they, when their actual daily existence entails not just 
being around each other all the time and not just seeing each other all the time, but actually seeing into each other and actually being able to see and sense how each other feel. You know, because, you know, their echolocation functions are just incredibly profound. Ways that we're just starting to understand. So, um, and part, and so, but it's also recognizing that killer whales were, prior to the appearance of humans, the uh, apex predator on the planet. They were the apex species. They were the most intelligent, they were the most widespread, and they truly ruled the oceans. Um, they, you know, they were the smartest animal in the water, smartest animal on the planet, that's for sure. And, uh, and they were, you know, set upon top that, that heap of, of uh, the, you know, sort of species uh, hierarchy of, you know, predator, apex predator down to prey. Uh, they've been sitting at top for six million years. So um, we're going to be lucky if we make it past 200,000 years as a species before we wipe ourselves off the planet. And I think we need to think about how we avoid that fate. Uh, and we look at ways we look at animals that were successful. Well, killer whales are the success story. What's the difference between humans and killer whales? Well, I mean, there's obviously a lot of differences. One's that they're oceanic and so on and so forth. But, but actually, there are incredible parallels between humans and killer whales, too, including that they have societies and language and culture. Um, What's the difference? What's the main, what's the biggest difference between humans and killer whales? It's that empathy. It's that ability. That's ability to sense and feel and understand each other. And truly, I think human society in the last uh, you know hundred years has actually become even more jaded and unempathetic. Uh, I think the more we go into the technological age, I think the more these becomes easier to objectify other people instead of feel empathy for them. And uh, and so I think we're headed in the wrong direction there. And we need so um, I would say that if that clearly if you're looking at what it was that helped killer whales stay atop that heap for six million years, you know, empathy is gotta be one of the leading things and particularly it's one of the leading differences between us and them so. so killer whales are just nicer than we are well not not if from the point of view of a seal or sea lion okay <laughs> uh, well we're not you know we're not very nice to, from the point of view of a cow exactly. <laughs> you know where it's exactly. like like if we're, if we're going you know if we're going that way i'm, I'm sure and truthfully, I think that, um, you know, they do actually seem to um, have some sort of respectful attitudes towards their prey, at least when we see them hunt uh, larger whales. Uh, there's very odd behavior that goes around with that that seems, you know, we're going to eat you, but we're going to respect you type stuff. Can you walk through that a little bit? Um, yeah, so when they hunt, when the transient or bigs type whales hunt uh, young humpbacks or young greys because um, they don't go for the adults but they always have to fight the adults to be able to get the calves um, 
they will they still will harass the adults by chewing on their flukes and on their fins and and giving them bites and um, but they also do they also basically do the same thing to the young until the young just give up they they harass them till the eventually you see the whale just stop and it's like okay go ahead and eat me and when that moment happens the whales move in very quickly and actually kill them very quickly so it's not a long long bit of suffering um, which is rather unusual i think it's kind of it shows like well yeah we're going to eat you but we don't want to be horrible about it <laughs> Because we could make this really a long, prolonged, sadistic death, but they don't. You know, there's nothing sadistic about um, killer whales, particularly that I've ever observed. You know, they, you see them uh, playing with uh, or knocking seals around quite a bit in the air, flipping them in the air when they've caught them. But I don't think that's cruelty. I think that they're trying to loosen the skin so that they can, because they they don't like the skin and seals. You know. Or they just find seals loud and they just annoying. Peel them, they peel them like a grape. They really do. If you go out after transients have killed a seal, you find the coat floating in the water. Wow. <laughs> and a lot of it, some of the scientists believe, you know, they're flipping them up like that. They'll grab them in their teeth and just go, or do it with their flukes. And it's to both render them unconscious as well as to loosen the, the skin. And make yeah. them easier to peel. Now, you did such a lovely job of explaining how echolocation is a shared sense in your book. Can you uh -huh. talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's where the empathy comes from as well. Yes, is they're actually seeing communally is sort of a mind-blowing concept. It really is. And this is, when it, to me, it's mind-blowing. So one of the things that, that these neurologists who've examined orca brains have said is that they apparently... Because of the this this echolocation sense and what it does to them neurologically, and you know their brains um, are not composed of most of our brains are actually primarily optical fibers because our primary sense is sight. Theirs are primarily um, auditory fibers, and uh, so so they're really really attuned to the sonic world is where they live, and it's really kind of how they see and sense the world much more than. They um, it's really a super important sense for them in a way that we can't really understand. But it also means, as I said, that they're looking inside each other. They see inside each other. They can sense how each other is feeling. Um, and, you know, and there's, of course, a million stories about them being hypersensitive and hyper aware of what humans are thinking and feeling, you know. Um, of course, my favorite is Alexander Morton's story about spending time with the killer whales when she left Marineland uh, as a trainer. She'd been working with these killer whales down there, and she wanted to go see them in their home territory. This included Corky. Um, so she went up and spent a summer with Paul Spong and hung out up there and came back and quit Marineland, <laughs> but had a conversation with, went in and had a chat with the had trainer uh, to offer some ideas and, uh, you know, give her some input and tell her what she'd learned. 
Uh, and she said, well, you know, one of the things is that they're doing behaviors up there in the wild that we never see them do here in these tanks. And those might be good to incorporate into their routines so that they are, you know, maybe more comfortable or happier or something. It's easier for them to do. And they're in her office, right, which is next to the orca pool. And uh, she says, uh, <laughs> they, and she was describing, she said, well, we you know, the thing that I saw up there was peck slaps, pectoral slaps, where they go slap, 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 like this on the water. You, know, you actually do see northern residents do this a lot. And, yeah, and she said, that's great. You know, uh, they, they wanted to, uh, <laughs> she said, that, yeah, we, that's a great idea. Let's see if we can incorporate that. And they turned around and looked out there, and there was Corky and the other whale doing circles in the pool of text. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love that story. It, 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 everybody who works with them has stories like this. You know, Ken, Ken can tell, Belcom will tell you about how the, when there's a new calf, the mothers will actually bring the calves over to their boats and have them turn themselves up so that, that Ken can, can get a photo. Yeah. So they, 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 they you know, they, it's a classic case of Dunning Kruger syndrome. You know, we're, we're too stupid to know that we're stupid. Right. <laughs> I'm a college man. I won't need my high school diploma anymore. I am too smart. I am too smart. I am too smart. What is because everybody I've spoken to who deals with orcas has that one at, <laughs> at, at least, least one inexplicable experience. Can you yeah. talk about yours? Because I know you've had them on the kayak on your kayak. Oh. Not so much inexplicable, but you know, it's. I, I actually wouldn't say they're my. I really had any inexplicable experiences with them. They all kind of fit within the range of behavior, but the, the way that they in, have interacted with me reveal the sly sense of humor and um, and a quick wit and the fact that they know what I'm thinking. Once I was up in Johnstone Strait recording and taking photographs of the northern residents and was in my kayak and listening to them and and I was in a really cool situation where I had a calf plane foraging around beneath me and the mother was out in front of me kind of keeping an eye on him and there was a big male standing guard and the larger pod was sort of passing nearby and I was thinking, you know, one of the things you hear is that the northern residents aren't as playful as the southern residents. You don't see the breaches and the spy hops and the demonstrative behavior as much as you do uh, the southern residents. And and, uh, <laughs> and I set my camera down. It was just kind of, I was, you know, going snick, 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 snick. And I finally just kind of set it down. Went, Man, these guys are actually just being really business-like, aren't they? There's not a lot going on. I'd kind of reached, I was like, okay, I've got all these shots that I need. And then just as I thought that, here comes that big male, just did a big breach about 20 feet away from my boat. I had my camera down, so all I got was a splice shot. <laughs> and he was like, the mustard of this, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. 
Now you got into the, the, some of the science of this in your book. You got into that with yeah. the cortical talking about the cortical folds. Yeah. Can you? Well, so cortical folding, of course, is an indication of intelligence. We've always known. This. Well, we thought it was an indication of intelligence until we found that they had more than we did. I remember finding this out and being completely shocked because I was asking, explain the cortical folds thing to me when I was working on the Moby Doll book. Yeah. And I was told that we, that human scientists were actually, you know, when people said, well, you know, we've got the biggest brain. And then they went, elephant brains are bigger. Yes, but ours are more complicated. We have more cortical folds. And then suddenly we're looking at cetacean brains and going, yeah, cortical folds tell you nothing. <laughs> right? Cor cor ignore the cor Pay no attention to the cortical folds. So can you talk about... Well, sure. Well, really, all the cortical folding actually means is that you have longer neurons that are, and more of them, so you're able, so the brain is able to calculate more data or process more data, right? That's what ultimately cortical. So basically, they have way more processing power than we do. Yeah, it's, and it's, you know, what the human scientists quickly will tell you is that, yeah, the majority of that uh, brain, that CPU up there that they have is devoted to uh, uh, translating acoustic. Uh, data, right? So it's mostly dedicated to their echolocation function, right? But that, of course, just sort of <laughs> ignores the question of, well, how important, uh, what, tell me more about this echolocation function, right? Because <laughs> we should actually want to know more about that. Uh, because that is another kind of intelligence, isn't it? Which we, but we don't utterly, we utterly do not possess that function. So we we kind of exclude it from our criteria of what comprises intelligence. Um, but yeah, killer whales have the second largest brain on the planet, second only to sperm whales. So it's a massive brain and it is the most gearified, gearification being your cortical folding index, has the highest gearification planet of any animal on the planet. I mean, it's um, I mean, humans are actually pretty high in cortical folding. Uh, I think our index is about 20, uh, 22. And killer uh, whales are at 57. <laughs> Bottlenose dolphins are at 53. So they have highly gearified brains as well. But, you know, and that was the thing that, you know, I think dolphins are pretty intelligent. I don't think they're anywhere near as intelligent as killer whales. So. And that's one of the mistakes that we've often made, that the scientists have often made, as far as I'm concerned, is that they've kind of just tossed killer whales into the cetacean box. And they've done all their studies and cetaceans of the intelligence that they need to, right? By uh, Because dolphins are really easy to study, right, comparatively. You, know, you can fit them into a lab a lot easier and keep them alive a lot longer. Um, and uh, you know, we it would have been possible. It would have been fascinating to see what we could have learned from the what 123 killer whales who've been captive over the years. Uh, but none of them were ever available for actual scientific study because they were too busy making money for their owners by entertaining people with stunts. Yeah, I remember reading Eric Hoyt's first report, and he said. The only aquarium doing any science was the Vancouver Aquarium. Yeah. And that was fairly minimal. Yeah, but that yeah. was the only aquarium doing yeah. 
any. He said no. He said no one else was even trying to do science. He hired they play Lance Barrett Leonard. Yeah, he does great. He's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, Nightingale's a nightmare. Or was. (laughs) Yeah, I don't like people. Oh well, now that's not fair, Roy. Have you met all of them? I've met enough of them. People. What a bunch of bastards. Now, uh, in terms of what those folds mean for how they sense things, you know, when we've thrown words like psychic around for orcas, mm-hmm. the, a word I heard the other day was telepathy. That it, what you're, you know, like the story you're telling about the orcas doing these peck slaps for yeah. the first time ever as Alexander Morton said, yeah, peck slaps are cool. Yeah. Is that explained through the science through the cortical folds? Or do we just got, or we just have no it idea? Can be. I think it's not so much the cortical folding, it's actually the, the lobes. Uh, you know, Lori Marino has pointed out that they have this paralimbic lobe that, node, sorry, in their brains uh, that's very near the amygdala, which is your emotional learning center. That we have no idea what it does, and I would not be surprised at all to find out that it has. They have really acute hearing, and the fact is that apparently, my understanding is that when we think, we actually vocalize it in, inside without being able to hear it. Uh, that it actually. So I suspect that something like that might be going on. That they're actually able to hear us think. Because we do vocalize it uh, to ourselves, you know, when we think thoughts, that it, it, there's a level at which it actually supposedly can be uh, can be picked up. But you know, we don't have the ability to do it, but they have this really acute hearing. Uh, so I think that something like that is possible, but I have no idea. It's just like their communications. We have no idea what to say. Like I said in the book, it, it's really, uh, for each uh, ecotype, it's about 40 to 50 calls that we hear them use. And a lot of times it's just repetition of calls. So you hear them go, you know, the same call repeatedly. But then you'll see, even though these calls are repeated, then suddenly their behavior change, right? Yeah. And, and so... We're trying to, you know, Val Veers, this uh, acoustic scientist out here on the west side of the island, does some great work. Uh, and if you have it, you know, you guys are going today. Um, he would be somebody for you to talk to. Uh, and he's talked about how the, um, uh, Val Veers has talked about how, um, you know, these, that he thinks that what might be going on is like, so, you know, that, um, J-Pod uses a call that they have labeled the S1. And it's a very unique call to them. And it's like, and uh, Scott is a, their signature call. That's the Moby Doll call. Yeah. 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 So he's, he was definitely a J-Pod whale. And um, um, the S1, you, what Val says is that it's, it functions the same way as a like an FM signal. That... Um, it's the, the, you know, it's the bandwidth, and the, it's actually the variations within uh, those uh, 
within that cycle that carries the information. It's not the actual sound itself, but it's the variation. So it's the it. transmitter, not the language. Yeah. yeah. And uh, exactly. But he thinks that that's how they actually might be actually communicating. It's just his theory, you know, but this probably works better than any of the others that I've ever heard because, you know, um, there clearly is a lot more going on there than just, you know, moo, moo. <laughs> I'm a little baffled at the reluctance to refer to what they're doing as a language. The fact that those, the fact that their communications are so different from pod to pod and so specific and last through generations. There's I think, you know, and, and Laurie Marino says, these are the most acoustically sophisticated animals on the planet. And I actually think that it's entirely possible that, you know, we're way over flattering ourselves as to the depth and power of our ability to communicate through speaking that, you know, because we're using these words. I suspect the killer whales find that rather crude, that they're, that their communication takes place through much more sophisticated means of interacting than simply blah, 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 right? Vocal, making noises with our vocal cords, right? And that's all we do. <laughs> yeah, it's just really, yeah, it, it's just really tough to believe that you've got these distinct dialects Right. that have been passed down generation to generation. They don't vary. They're not random sounds. Uh, they, you know, each pod has their own specific versions of mm -hmm. these. To, to just go, well, no, I, to, to I, just I, go, that's just noise, is, is bizarre. Is, is, is not, is an insufficient way of describing how they communicate. Nice. So. I'm fine! <laughs> Totally fine. I, I don't know why it's coming out all loud and squeaky, because really, I'm fine. Rain, I'll throw this to you for a second. Anything going through your head right now? Yeah, is, I, have a, I do have a question. Do you think, um, John Cooksey has this idea when I talk to him, that when people first find out about what's going on environmentally, on whatever level they find out, that they shouldn't be allowed to talk about it publicly for about a year because you go through this grieving process and you actually have to go through it where you realize that things are kind of really messed up and whatever you're looking at and that when people go out right away and start talking about it they just have all this anger and rage and sadness and they blame everybody and they yell and they it's very doom and gloom it's hard to focus he said that if people take time to process especially if they're working with kids it's much better because they can frame things in a way that actually gives people hope and a way of working towards a solution and sure information because there anything people who are having trouble processing what's going on, either with Trump or with the orcas or with things in general, general yeah. that they could do to kind of help deal with that yeah. and what they're feeling. Because I, I hear the pain, right? I mean, yeah. I'm feeling it today after all the anger. You know? Yeah. Um. I would... You know, the main thing is, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a devotee of, uh, of Benedict Spinoza and Martin Buber, <laughs> the philosophers. And Buber, uh, 
you know, wrote that, um, you know, humans have two ways of understanding the world. We have two ways of processing, of coming to terms with the world. One is the world via that, the world of objectification, where we turn the world into objects and account them and play numbers. And the other is the world of I and thou, or, you know, I and thou, the world of relations. Uh, which operates in a very different way. Um, and um, humans need both of them in order to be able to cope with the world. If you only go down the path of I and that, you become a psychopath. If you go down, if you become inured at the world of I and thou, you're basically autistic. <laughs> you know, uh, you're not able to function in a normal way. Um, and so um, being able to function well as a human being means learning to balance that. So I would just say, you know, whatever you can do to find the balance in your own life between um, seeing people, seeing the world in purely objective terms or, you know, purely objective objects as, as well as balancing the world of emotional relations and you know, being able to mix them. Um, you know, Boober's thesis was, and I totally agree with him, that human society has gone very so hard in the direction of INET that we've, we're starting to lose our ability to even maintain an INET now. And uh, a lot of being able to deal with the world and change the world has, in my mind, comes down to pulling humans back, people back to empathy. So what I would say is that start with yourself. Uh, learn to be a more empathetic human because that's who we have to change. That's what we have to do is change people in their hearts and minds. So start with yourself and be as empathetic to other people as you can. Practice empathy and, and, and know that empathy can be disadvantage it can be a problem and if you over apply it you know if you're if you don't understand that there are psychopaths out there you're going to become a victim of them right so um so there is a balance that has to be maintained but at the same time i think if we want to change the world we have to change ourselves first and then change the people around us slowly one at a time and we have to use that same empathy with those people we want to change we can't force our ideas down their throat. We can't shame them into uh, changing their view. I mean, that's the big flaw that most progressives make is that, well, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I'm a vegan, so therefore all people who eat meat are awful. You know? <laughs> He's like, hey, wait. <laughs> you know, there's actually a whole world of people out there that are pretty decent people who eat meat, but they just haven't, seen they haven't been exposed to the ideas and it, it frequently takes time to convince people of the ideas that you believe in you know uh, one of the it's kind of arrogant to assume that all you have to do is tell people this great idea and they will instantly believe it you know oh yeah god i poof, i see the light right you know well that's not the way the world works folks <laughs> and so um yeah empathy patience kindness generosity um, and I think this ties into what I wanted to ask, is what can we learn from the orcas?
Well, that's the subtitle of my book, What Killer Whales Can Teach Us. And yep. Yeah, I think that that is the lesson. I think we have to return. I think we have to be that that human animal that is that is generous and kind. And that it's not necessarily easy for us, but uh, we certainly can see wild animals that are generous and kind. Because <laughs> that's what these killer whales are. And uh, merciful. Yeah. As I, that was the term, as you may recall, that I described that I had, that I first sort of, one of my early encounters with them in the kayaks were, is that, well, they are merciful animals because they can kill my ass at any moment, and they never do. They never even bother me at all. They're merciful. And, uh, that would be something pretty good for humans to do, too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Fish are friends, not food. Except stinking dolphins. Dolphins! Thanks again for checking out Scanna. If you like the show, please tell all your friends. I'm Mark Lernian, and this is Scanna. Spread the word, subscribe on iTunes, visit our YouTube channel for cool bonus material, including ideas from guests like David Nywert on how you can make waves for orcas, oceans, the environment, and 100-year-old whales. And if you'd like to find out more about 100-year-old whales, please head over to Vimeo and use our special discount code for Scanna listeners, GrannyFB15. Also, subscribe to our newsletter at Scanna.org and our new Scanna magazine on Medium.com, and we'll send you updates on upcoming episodes and news about orcas and oceans. We just posted a story there about my thoughts on the mission to save Scarlet, that's J50, and I'd love to know what you think of the story, and what you think about what happened and what didn't happen to save Scarlet. And if you want to find out how the world fell in love with orcas, check out my book, the Killer Whale Who Changed the World, available in paperback, ebook, and audio edition at audible.com. If you'd like to help us make more podcasts more often, please join our pod at patreon.com. And if you'd like to volunteer to help us out, contact us at scanna.org. If the show didn't work for you, you were not listening to me and David Nywert. This was Jad and Robert at Radiolab. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu, with assistance this week from Clarita Ritchie, Chantel Heward, Olivia Pierce, Josie Liechty, and Emma S. Lake. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our upcoming episodes with guests like Julia Barnes, writer and director of the documentary Sea of Life, Jason Colby talking about his book, Orcas, How We Came to Know and Love the Ocean's Greatest Predator, and a special tribute to eco-legend Rob Stewart and his new film, Sharkwater Extinction. Now, we thought we'd end off with a fantastic new song by Fantastic Old Folky. This is We Don't Want Your Pipelines by Bob Bosson. And this version? Performed by me and Mike McCormick from the Arrogant Worms at their recent concert in Victoria, B.C. I wanted to end off with something, again, that I've never done before. When I was doing Local Anxiety, we never did anybody else's songs but our own. The thing is, Local Anxiety exists 
because when I was at the Edmonton Fringe Festival, I saw a guy named Bob Bossin. Any Bossin fans out there? I saw Dr. Bob Bossin's home medicine show, and I thought, man, that is how you do political comedy. I fell in love with it. Bossin was just in Victoria doing his farewell tour, and he did this song, and I thought, I have to share this with you. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of something called the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Yeah. See, I've mostly been writing about whales. And when I heard about the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, I read their report. And their report actually says, this is the report by the National Energy Board, which never met a pipeline they didn't like. And their report says that the Kinder Morgan Pipeline would cause, quote, significant adverse effects to the southern resident killer whale population. So I reached out to every single scientist I had interviewed for this book that I wrote called The Killer Whale Who Changed the World. I've got a podcast called Scan. I've been interviewing experts for that too. And I reached out to all of them and said, could a population this small survive significant adverse effects? And their answer was, absolutely not. So Kinder Morgan does equal extinction for the southern resident killer whales. And then I heard Bob Bossin sing this song, and I knew I had to end off with it. This is called, We Don't Want Your Pipelines. Feel free to join in. We don't want your pipelines. We don't want your pipelines. Take your sunshine, water, and wind. We're gonna put a stop sign on Kinder Morgan's pipeline. Go tell your neighbors, go get your friends. Alberta's on fire, there's floods down east. Orcas are in trouble, dying coral reefs. The whole world is heating up by two or three degrees And still they want to build another pipeline We don't want your pipeline We don't want your pipeline We'll take your sunshine, water, and wind We're gonna put a stop sign on Kinder Morgan's pipeline Go tell your neighbors, go get your friends Boilovers, blowouts, sinkholes too. A fiery inferno somewhere every month or two. But Justin says it's safe. Man, he hasn't got a clue. He wants to go and build another pipeline. We don't want your pipelines. We don't want your pipelines. We'll take your sunshine, water, and wind. We're gonna put a stop sign on Kinder Morgan's pipeline. Go tell your neighbors, go get your friends. Suits all say the deal's gone down. What's good for oil is good for all, we can't turn it around. But if we could end apartheid and we saved Clockwood Sound, we can stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline. 